Hello, new friends. If you've listened to the past couple episodes, welcome back. If you're new here, then hi. Um, so today we are on the third recap episode of Netflix's Drive to Survive. As per usual, during each recap, I will be going through what's happening in the episode, making some commentary, um, making some light commentary, but not so light. Uh, <laughs> when you hear me say things like side note, sidebar, pit stop, or box, that means I want to go into a little bit more detail about things I feel like they missed in the episode or didn't explain well enough or things I was just curious about. The episode we're going over today is titled Redemption, which is most likely referring to Daniel Ricardo's crash into his teammate's car in Baku. And the episode description says, quote, also, the men and women of Williams Racing fight to remain relevant. <laughs> the little also that they threw in there doesn't really uh, bode well for them. So let's get into it. This episode begins with a sit-down interview and the lovely side profile zoom-in of Christian Horner's Foch, the Red Bull team principal, as you all should know by now. We can clearly see his little smirk outlines on the edges of his eyes, and I won't call them laugh lines because it's like more of a smirk, especially if he's being petty. Um, I'm also dead at the Netflix producer, just straight up. How pissed off were you in Azerbaijan? And Christian's face just like scrunches up in a one word response as he like stares right back to him and he says, very. So period queen, he was not happy. We get a flashback scene to the boys racing each other and Horner explains that they have discussed all this before the race and the drivers agreed to, quote, give each other space, which they clearly did not as we saw the result. And we see them side by side and like that infamous rear ending. Um, that sounded bad. <laughs> the infamous crash. Then in like some cartoonish way but also luckily they like slide right off into the other street instead of the barrier there's this little like I guess runoff since they know it's a shitty corner um so luckily the boys just slide right down there we hear Max scream fuck so loud from the cockpit that we really did not need him mic'd up or the radio <laughs> uh christian tells us he made his feelings known to them afterwards which basically he means he probably cursed them the fuck out or at least i hope he did which they both deserved but also what were these engineers actually saying to them i need to know maybe i'll go back one day and like listen to this whole race but it, <laughs> christian had to have gotten on the radios right like i don't know it, <laughs> Maybe I'll just listen to it, like I said, and I'll get back to you since I'm like a little gossiper. I just really need to know. Back to the team's camp where Christian tells the other team leader that the guys um, basically just fucked away 25 to 30 points, which is true because they were probably going to do well that race. Now we're back to the track, they're the scene of the accident, where Daniel's climbing out first. Max's voiceover says they were fighting for positions and you never want to crash with your teammate. Daniel's voice immediately follows over a scene of the media surrounding him as he walks away and he takes off the headgear. He explains that he was sure of what happened and that it wasn't his fault, but apparently they made him feel guilty. Um, let's sidebar here. We've seen that crash multiple times by now with all the you know replays or whatever. So I did try to see what happened. To me, it looked like Max braked hard and Daniel was just way too close behind. But also they have mirrors, so Max knew that, and that clearly was a stupid move, because what else was going to happen? Whatever. Moving on. 
We see Max's sad face, and he's already changed out of his uniform by then, and back to the famous scene of Daniel just, you know, walking away, curls bouncing in the wind, with a look back over his shoulder in the slow-mo, amongst a pretty thin crowd, so who knows where he was walking out from. He tells us that this year his contract is up, uh, so he's wondering what more he can do with another year at Red Bull. He could be happier starting new, really. Box, 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 box. So the question is, just how long has Daniel been with Red Bull at this point? So technically, he was contracted with Scuderia Toro Rosso as their test driver in 2011, but he drove for Hispana Racing, or HRT. Toro Rosso is the Italian sister team of Red Bull. They actually have the same logo, just like a different color scheme. In 2012, he went full-time for Rosso until 2014, and then he was promoted to the Red Bull team with world champion Seb Vettel as his teammate. So in total, he had been with the team or company about six years at that point. So back to the episode, we have the signature pit stop title sequence, still with Ferrari car number six. Also see a nice drone shot of Oxfordshire, England, a beautiful piece of land, which we see is owned by Christian and his wife, who is the Queen Jerry Holloway, now Horner, Miss Ginger fucking Spice herself. Oh my God. When I realized this moment, I had such a fangirl. I was like, wait, 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 what, what, what? So we see them and their two little white terriers and their little daughter playing in the yard. Jerry then tells her husband that one of the little doggos got kicked by a donkey yesterday, which sounds like a euphemism until we see actual donkeys and goats like chomping away at grass. So those poor little dog got kicked. <laughs> Ginger Spice then brings the donkeys closer to the fence to show the little girl who cannot be any older than six with her cute little pigtails. Oh, what a nugget. And Christian jokes that the two donkeys are basically Max and Daniel, while Jerry sarcastically laughs at his dad joke. Uh, Christian also says that the boys are similar to donkeys on occasion, basically saying that they're jackasses for the not-so-subtle jab. But his wife makes it more lighthearted, saying sometimes they love each other and sometimes they butt each other, which of course we saw happen quite literally in Baku. Uh, to which Christian responds, managing donkeys is sometimes easier than the drivers. <laughs> I I don't know if this like scene was planned, but if that's like legitimately how he talks, it's hilarious and ridiculous at the same time. Next scene is a slow motion of Max walking and just a teensy smirk at the camera, just basically looking like a scene from The Office. Christian's voiceover was explaining that all the drivers have slight insecurities like any great sportsman, which is a word I love and I shall be using rather than athlete. We see more short slow-mo clips of Daniel looking somber, though his hair and curls still look great, good for him. And to contrast, another smile of Max while their principal is going on about Max being an exciting emerging talent, not even at 21 yet. Pause for dramatic effect because I was in my college dorm not knowing shit to do with my future while this kid at that time was one of the best in the world at his sport making millions. <sighs> Damn my parents for not putting me in carding or something else, but whatever. And we're back to Chris's sit down interview, Christian sit down interview saying that they're just drivers at different stages in their career which seems like not so subtle shade to daniel then we get the characteristic whiplash scene which changes to horner's residence and talking about looking forward to the august break 
back to the sit-down interview, he acknowledges that it's an important time for Danny in his career and that he's at a crossroads, which we should probably keep that in the back of our head. Kristen says he'd love Daniel to stay, but if he doesn't want to be there, then that's just F1. And it's, quote, a big boy sport. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Back to England, the couple discusses Monaco being the next race. Horner says that it would be good to see Max get a result. Um, possible foreshadowing. We shall see. Uh, Netflix then flies us across the globe to Perth, which we know is Daniel's hometown. We just see some little horsies trotting about. And I think a newly constructed side house. It's literally just made of wood and not even painted. So seems new. Inside we go and we see Glenn Beavis and Daniel talking. You can't not think of Beavis and Butthead in this moment when I saw the name. So sorry if that's so inappropriate. <laughs> um, however, at this time, they are unfortunately discussing a very serious moment. Beavis says to Daniel, quote, they want an answer from us as early as possible. And after the last few minutes, we can only assume they equals Red Bull. And the answer is, is Danny staying or not? Daniel's first response to this question is, who's going to be out of contract? At this point, he's talking about like whose spot could he potentially take if another driver isn't guaranteed their seat for next season. So apparently Lewis, Kimi, and Bottas were up at that point. Beavis says if Valtteri has a bad year, how long will Mercedes wait on that before making a decision to keep him or not? We see a profile sit-down interview with Daniel explaining to the producer that this is the first time he's been in a position to leave and negotiate and discuss moving with the other teams. He's also sporting a little mustache, which only he can pull off, but just barely. Beavis gets his own sit-down interview, actually, and he's labeled as Daniel's advisor. Um, he actually kind of reminds me of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Sorry, Glenn. He says that they're weighing the options of making a tactical move, but... If they are considering that, then the important question is where? What team? We hear that previous quote from Danny. The only thing on my mind is to get results now because the better I do, the better offers I'm going to have from the other teams. And this plays over a clip of him winning at the Shanghai Grand Prix and drinking his infamous shoey. Sidebar, for those who are unaware, Daniel likes the unique celebration of pouring champagne into his sweaty shoe and drinking it on the podium. To some, this is hilarious, but to most people, it's just gross. I personally have no opinion on it. The kid just won a race. Let him do whatever he wants, you know? Back to the main discussion of this scene. Beavis tells Danny that Merck and Ferrari are obvious options, but then he says the now famous quote of the series, anything can happen. Well, quote slash theme. It's always anything can happen in F1. Daniel responds that he doesn't want to rush into a decision just yet, which is smart because it's kind of a big deal. Shoot over to Will Buxton in his sit-down interview. He tells the producer that Red Bull Racing is not the competitive force they used to be, previously winning four championships in a row. But that pales in comparison when you see where the Williams team are compared to the same point in time. Cue the transition into Williams Racing as per the episode description, and we pull up to a gorgeous home in Bedfordshire, England. We see cute little family photos of the Williams family, specifically Claire Williams, in her home and her playing with her sweet little baby with a little race car. He's so cute. He legitimately looks like a little Gerber baby logo. And her husband actually makes a little cheeky joke that the toy car is faster than the team's car. 
Is that a burn against your own in-laws, bro? Jeez. Switch to a clip of Claire's sit-down interview where she introduces herself as team principal. And then she gives a brief history of the team. So her father actually started Williams Racing in 1977, which means they've been racing for 41 years. They were a huge success story back in the day, like the 80s and 90s, and they've actually won 16 world championships. Wow. Then we see a little picture of preteen Claire, and I'm assuming her other brothers. She explains that she used to help out the team when she was younger. Now, fast forward, she explains since her taking over in 2013, the team has steadily been declining, unfortunately. Mr. Chris Medlin, our journalist friend, explains that they were third in the constructors in 2014 and 15, but have been slipping on down to the bottom. Uh, let's box box. And let's check their constructor's standings from the 2010s to see the peaks in the pits. Uh, so, so let's see. Starting from 2010, they were 6th, then 9th, 8th, 9th, 3rd, 3rd again, 5th, and 5th again at the end of 2017 season. Uh, remember, we are only on the 2018 season that we're watching. So I didn't think fifth was that bad, but I guess if you're talking about a super competitive sport, anything below third is just like not where you want to be. Pan over to the Williams headquarter in Wantage, 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 England, and Claire's voiceover is continuing that the competition has become more fierce in the last five years and challenging circumstances have come along. Then she says a wonderful quote, in my opinion. Sport is not supposed to be easy. Winning isn't easy. And that's why it's so amazing when you do, because you deserve it. And at the moment, we don't deserve to win. We've got to put the work in if you're going to change that. Excuse my accent. I feel like that's a wonderful admission, and I just really love how it's explained point blank, especially when people are questioning other teams' wins, like, quote, having a better car. That's how the teams work. I think she's trying to say that the team itself needs to give a better car so that their driver can win. However, it's a large fall from grace. Buxton jumps in and says they've gone from fighting for pole and podiums to, quote, scrapping to get off the bottom of the grid. As she's walking through the factory, her voiceover says they need to keep ignoring the haters, my word, not hers, and basically keep believing the changes they're making will work. Meddling comes back in and tells the interviewer that this might be a deeper issue. Do they need to change their whole outlook? Who knows? We're now taken into the Williams team meeting in an auditorium. We get right down to business when the for now unnamed speaker says, quote, this car has not been performing as we'd expect. The first few races were literally the slowest team on track, end quote. And during this, we get zoomed in on views of the team looking concerned or distressed, you might say, um, or they're just scratching their faces, who knows? But Netflix is trying to make it seem like it's aggressive. Claire's voice chimes in again, and she tells the audience that she was given a great opportunity, and she, quote, only agreed to do it because I thought at the time I could help turn the business around. Now we skip to Claire addressing the team and she says they will not go down the road of a B team and that it would be over my dead body, which seems to grant a few smiles from the staff and that, quote, you will never read in the press that Williams has turned itself into a junior or B team. 
Claire then addresses us, the audience now, saying she has to protect the history of the team. And if under her watch it all goes downhill, then it's basically all her fault. Which she sounds like she's got too much pressure for one person, but I guess it's what she signed up for. Switching over to Chris Medlin's narration on Williams, uh, he says that Monaco could basically be a painful weekend for them because their car is most certainly the slowest in the field. He explains that more than F1 fans watch Monaco because it's, quote, bonkers, which is very true. I've seen the glitz and glam before, and they definitely have used that in movies for a reason. Netflix gives us that globe graphic, and we fly over to Race 6 in Monte Carlo, Monaco. And without knowing F1, you can see that the track circuit looks hard AF with those corners. We're then taken out of Monaco Harbor and yacht scenes and some rando lady drinking champagne just to beat it home that Monaco's bougie AF. Daniel's voiceover tells us that this is his favorite race on the calendar. Switch to his sit down continuing on. It's the most sigh. Then editing trails him off. We hear some cool DJ beats in the background while seeing the boats and the yachts, some trays of champagne, and some girl dancing at a table. Switch to Christian sit down. Then he tells us Monaco's the big one. And we see a shit ton of paparazzi and media taking pictures of something or someone who knows. Some scantily clad ladies are running around for a fashion show. You know, they're just trying to beat it home that it's <laughs> it's the fancy one where all the glitterati are pan to a bunch of beautiful people partying expensively. You've got the boats. We see a huge fucking yacht and a couple sick-ass speedboats. The harbor, then a shit ton of events, like a fashion show that we just saw. Some guy doing a flip on a tightrope. The celebrities, which <laughs> then they show us John fucking Snow and Jamie Lannister. Jamie Lannister just chilling. Will Smith walking around through the crowd smiling and Lewis Hamilton waving at people. Christian continues, it just exudes money and glamour. We see more shots of expensive cars, bikini babes, and then a tiny clip of Danny looking dapper AF in the navy suit. While Daniel says, it's just a lot of cool shit in a small space, which is a good sum up. And then the next shot is Tom Brady perfectly throwing a football to Daniel, who's just waiting on a yacht like 20 to 30 yards away. So good on you. <laughs> And then, of course, this makes him look super cool for the media and the crowd watching. Kristen's voice comes over the very old scenes of early Monaco races and the drivers. He says, Monaco is Monaco. It's the oldest race on the calendar. It's the most prestigious one and so much heritage, so much history. Side note, this footage is amazing. Like the earliest black and white ones look like they've been made for a movie. It doesn't even seem like real life. I don't know about you guys, but it's really hard for me to imagine these old cars and life before we see them than we do today. Christian continues on to explain that the track is pretty much the same it's always been for 76 Grand Prix and that all the greats have raced and won at Monaco. So he's kind of implying if you don't win at Monaco, will you never be great? I wonder if there's a world champion there who hasn't won there. So let's box, shall we? A short little internet search has led us to find out that 13 world champions of F1 have never won at Monaco. So, ha! Safe to say that Christian is exaggerating just a little bit. Or, 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 he doesn't believe that those champions are greats, quote-unquote. Um, just to name a couple of them, we have Mr. James Hunt, who was one of the subjects of the amazing Hollywood movie Rush. He retired six times in Monaco races. Yikes. 
that track did not like him. But anyway, let's return to the show. Christian names a few of his greats, like Fangio, Graham Hill, Ayrton Senna. He says, quote, the pressure and the prestige that goes with that race, if you come out on top winning that Grand Prix, it's bigger than anything else. And while he's talking, we're treated to a few victory clips of two previous Red Bull winners celebrating Mark Webber and Sebastian Vettel. Medlin now chimes in over more beautiful views of Monaco to tell us that Red Bull have targeted this race from the very start of the season because their car is suited to this track. Switch to scenes of Daniel signing more autographs and taking pictures. Chris then continues on that Daniel will want to stand out because the team seems to be putting more weight behind Max for the future. And of course, a short scene of Max signing things and then being whisked away. Uh, we're then treated to a nice side profile zoom of Horner again, shamelessly stating that, quote, Max has got that sort of magic dust around him. He's the next generation coming through, end quote. We really can't get enough of Christian's love for Max, can we? <laughs> we then see Max and his probably his trainer on a boat talking. Max then points out which yacht he likes, and they're discussing how much it probably is. And he makes a joke that it's so big you can lose your friends on board. Switch to Max's first sit-down interview, finally, where he does his own intro and throws in that he's the youngest F1 winner. Um, let's side note over here. Max is referring to his win at the 2016 Spanish Grand Prix when he was only 18 years old. Very impressive. Um, I was probably chugging beers at the times with my friends somewhere in some college dorm, as were the rest of us, but good for him. <laughs> Back to the boat scene, he says that because he lives in Monaco, the weekend is the same for him, just a bit busier, and his mom is there to go visit and wash his laundry for the weekend. It's really amazing how no matter what age, the level of fame that a mama's boy will always shine through. Um, the scene then fades to a caption screen that, that says, In 2017, Red Bull signed a lucrative contract with Max Verstappen, reportedly eclipsing Daniel Ricciardo's current deal. Yikes. Buxton then cheekily explains to us if Max is truly promised more money, the young buck, than Daniel's earnings right now, that that'll hurt. I'm sure he's referring to Danny's ego and feelings, etc., etc. The scene then we're taking to is an over-the-top dock setup Red Bull has, and the walkway is lined with massive pictures of their accomplishments. Over small clips of the chaos of Monaco's paparazzi snapping away, drivers running around, Daniel narrates that Red Bull loves to create headlines, break records, and of course, win. They are investing in Max because they want a, quote, youngest world champion. That's the dream. Journalist Chris then points out the obvious, that there's probably tension between the two since Max has locked this lucrative contract in place, but Daniel's up and now he might be looking for a new one. The question that came to my mind is a new one with who? Christian's interview clip quickly chimes in to say that Max is, quote, one of the big names of Formula One for the next 10 years, but Daniel is hugely important to Red Bull. Honestly, I don't know if I really believe him. He just has this sneaky snake feel about him, but who knows, maybe that's just like the wall or the facade he puts up. In the next scene, we hear some cool beats at a pool party where you can tell it's exclusive to Red Bull guests only. Christian is now talking to a man I couldn't tell who it is at first, but after seeing Miss Gracie's hair, I now know is Joe Ricardo. As Horner's talking to Joe, he looks directly at the fucking camera. Like, dude, this isn't the office. Does that mean that you're wanting them to catch this conversation, or are you nervous because you're mic'd up? Anyways, 
He's telling Daniel's father that there are no number one drivers here, meaning the Red Bull Racing Company, and that nothing would give them greater joy than to see him achieve the world championship in one of their cards. Like, come on. <laughs> Any team would want a champion in their car. Thanks for stating the obvious vague statement bullshit about a driver who's been with your company for years. Okay, let's back back and I'll cool it a little bit. Daniel started driving with Red Bull technically as a tester and he worked his way up over the years, as I mentioned before. However, nine years is a long time with any company. So without knowing that information, people could think like, oh, well, yeah, people just move on. But now it almost seems like, damn, they really didn't have faith in him. Who knows? And back to the show. Buxton then comes in saying he doesn't believe him and Max is the chosen star for the future. Retweet Will. We're then let in on the rest of the conversation with Joe and Christian, which is more like Christian talking at him. Christian's saying that he hopes Daniel feels the support of the team and that there's, quote, no pressure to have the youngest world champion or anything like that. Meanwhile, Sweet Joe is just silently nodding along to this bullshit that he knows is BS, by the way, and, and awkwardly rubbing his arm. Like, poor thing is probably so uncomfortable. Imagine your kid being a great racer that's probably getting left into the dust by his team that he's been with for nine years. Who knows if I would have kept it together if it was my kid, but you gotta be cordial in this sport. Anyways, now we see Red Bull's own, own mini-yacht pull up to the flashy dock that we just saw minutes ago and a scene of Max and Daniel posing next to a Monaco sign for the media. Danny narrates over the scene with, quote, if they really want me, they need to put something awesome in front of me and snap me up. As I'm analyzing this, I now realize he could have been talking about any team. But of course, Netflix is really making it seem like he's talking about Red Bull because they need to make the offer and make it a good one. But we never really will know if that's what he meant. Of course, Max basically speeds off after the picture, again, proving the point that they're trying to get across these guys really don't interact or like each other. I mean, honestly, maybe the kid just had to be really bad, but who knows. Then we have another scene with Flash, and we're given a Claire Williams interview instead. She says Monaco is going to be a very tough race for them, but given what she says has been happening, aren't all the races going to be tough for them? Shrug. In the garage, she says to another team member, she hopes that, quote, their little cars make it through in one piece to get some points. The narration to us kicks in and she sounds more desperate in her voice in the need to score points so the gap doesn't widen to a point that they're just not in the mix anymore. And then they finish 10th in the final constructors. Besides ego and prestige and all the downfalls of coming in last, in F1, it could be particularly brutal. Buxton and Claire both explain that it will have financial impacts. She explains that they're basically spending a third, maybe even close to a fourth, of what Marari and Mercedes have as a budget. Guys, and I feel like we just don't understand how much money that truly is. In Dax's podcast interview with Daniel, Dax made a joke about how one of these teams could spend a billion dollars in about five years, which could cure some type of cancer and maybe one day the sport will make a huge donation but anyways right now that's not happening back to the scene over them talking at one point we see one of the williams crew literally put duct tape on the front wing of the car i don't know if it was for a legit race or just packing it up but they're definitely trying to show the difference in this quote budget at this point in the episode there's some like rock intro music starting over a shot of what should be really guns and roses however it's two williams crew two ferrari crew four-time champ sebastian vettel and billionaire lawrence stroll 
The white-haired billionaire gets a caption explaining he's been a huge investor in Williams for the last two years. And now, for the 2018 season, his son is unsurprisingly one of the Williams drivers. Then, as the caption fades to the next scene, the music also fades out, but, like, similar to that of a balloon being slowly deflated. This is over a scene of Lance Stroll, who happens to be strolling down the streets of Monaco. We meet him via producer interview, and his first line is talking about how an F1 financial help has to come from somewhere. He introduces himself as 19 years old and that he's on his second season with Williams. Uh, Let's have a quick pit stop at this point. At the end of 2017, after 20 races, Lance finished with 40 points in 12th place, right behind his then-teammate Felipe Massa. As a reminder, Williams finished 5th in the Constructors, and the second driver for 2018 is now Sergei Sorakin. So let's go back to the show. Claire chimes in to let us in on the not-so-secret of Lawrence investing so that his son would get a seat. Of course, this has a huge impact on the team, but she needs to believe that Stroll has the best interests of the team at heart. Side note, this guy, Lawrence Sr., is a billionaire from his his father's smart investing in fashion to begin with, and then he took it over himself. So he's really not an idiot and will not put his money into things that he wants to fail. So having the best interests of the team in this case would mean his own as well. And his kid is performing decently, so that really can't be the worst choice for the team. My very first impression of Lance isn't too great, but it's still too early to tell. As Lance goes on, he talks about other paid drivers not delivering, and he got a podium his rookie season and is still striving. During this montage of the podium celebration, we see his beaming father beaming with pride, which is really sweet. Now Buxton chimes in and reiterates what I was just thinking. Stroll Sr. wants a car that will deliver based on the money he's investing, and that will make his son a winner, or at least towards the top. So the second that it's not working, he will take his money elsewhere. Lanson makes a comment saying it's been frustrating with Williams on and off the track. We're then looking at Saturday of Monaco race weekend, which is the practice session and then quali. There's a bunch of chaos and clips of media of Max and Daniel getting interviewed. Christian narrates over the Red Bull mechanics working on the car. He explains that because Monaco doesn't have a lot of straights, horsepower of a car isn't everything. The boys can extract pace from the car and cut in close to the barriers. Journalist Chris chimes in to say that Red Bull will want Max to win the race because they're, quote, investing in him. Again, reiterating and driving home this point, all this money is behind Max. And they're putting faith in him for the future. And, of course, this is over a clip of Max (laughs) juggling balls with his trainer. Uh, Let's quick box. This training may seem kind of random, but no, Max is not from a circus family. In fact, all these drivers know how to juggle, or the majority do, because it's really testing their reflexes and arm strength. They need to be able to react to anything while going up to 200 miles per hour. Journalist Chris continues that because overtaking is so hard in Monaco, quality is really the most important part. On this circuit, you're pushing to the limit to get the fastest quality time and get the best position on the grid. Daniel starts narrating over a clip of him jump roping. He tells us that he's always fired up for Monaco because it's the most difficult track with the smallest margin for error. Switch over to Max just chilling on his cell phone in his changing room, narrating saying a win is possible for him. 
In his sit-down interview, he tells us that driving has improved. His qualifying is strong compared to Danny and that he feels good. Back to the race weekend, we're down to scenes of the paddock, the fans, and the cars going out for free practice number three. While we see clips of Max driving around the street, Christian praises him again, saying he has a magic, beautiful driving style. Max comments about the track being hard to drive on, and any slip you could make, you'll end up in the wall. The commentator says he's got the fastest lap so far, and we're on board his car at the point. He is flying past these others. You really forget how fast it is to be in that car until you're in an onboard. Of course, Netflix gave us some foreshadowing. Max goes slightly bumping his front right tire into a corner, and at that speed, it damages the steering. So instead of going left on the swerve, he goes straight into the wall, smashes up the front right side of the car, his wheel literally hanging off. The front wing flew off, and there's just debris all over this track. Ugh, this is the worst-case scenario for the team. At this point, it causes a red flag for the session, and the mechanics are going to have to scramble to get his car back in shape for quality, if it's even possible. The commentators in the background are talking about the chances of that even happening. Max is walking around the garage looking tight, and one of their crew is closing the wall or blind or whatever, so you can't see into the garage anymore as the music and the zoom noises come to a dramatic halt. Fade to black and fast forward a few hours, now we're meeting to Quali, but did Max in the car? Who knows? We see a slow-mo of Danny looking happy while walking and then switch to a pissed off looking Max. More slow-mo clips of the drivers getting ready for qualifying in Monte Carlo as we see one of the race commentators reiterates it's the most exciting quality of the season. Now we focus on Lance and the Williams as he pulls out into the track. Claire and Stroll Sr. are talking as she says, you know, like friendly banter. We'll see how this goes this afternoon. And as Mr. Stroll opens his mouth, the way she just looks at him like, ugh, I can't fucking stand you and makes that face at him. Lauren says that Lance was struggling in his seat in the first session and apparently it was moving around and then proceeds to do this awkward, unnecessary hip shaking movement to further prove his points. But thankfully, the mechanics got it fixed. Claire is also like, yeah, yeah, I hope they fix that and then just walks away. I don't know if it's out of concern or like, get me away from this man, but who knows. Back to Lance on the track, we hear his engineer on the radio not saying anything too exciting. Then Lance complains that his headrest is loose, which of course the drivers don't want, but he just barks out, just fix it, which is rude AF. The comm engineer responds, okay, we'll fix it the next time around, and then proceeds to give instructions on the pace that he needs. Lance gives feedback while driving and none of it is good. Too much understeer, not enough traction, and that he can't get any faster. The announcer then tells us they're starting towards the back of the grid, and of course I looked it up. Specifically, they end up in 18th position, a full 1.3 seconds behind the leader of Q1, which is Danny Rick. Then we see a dejected slash angry looking Mr. Stroll in the paddock and Claire wiping her eyes in the garage. It's unclear if these are tears or maybe just boogies. But breaking news, they tell us, Max is out of quality. Christian explains that they actually managed to fix the car. However, when they fired up the engine, there was oil leaking out of the gearbox, which just ruined any chance they had of competing that day. We see Sky Sports interview footage of him saying how Max has learned a hard lesson of driving a Monaco. The announcer states that the obvious of all hopes is laying at Daniel Ricciardo. Cue dramatic slow-mo of Danny now getting ready in the car. Quote, 
can he beat Ferrari and Mercedes to start in pole position on race day? Um, let's box at this point. Lewis Hamilton, as we know, was last year's champion, but Sebastian Vettel and the Ferrari finished second, and their teammates respectively took third and then fourth. So we know that they're the two teams Red Bull needs to get past this season. We then see the fans with their Aussie flags, their Red Bull shirts, even a Danny Bighead cutout. We see Lewis, Seb, and Danny flying around the track for quali. Danny's engineer tells him that he's currently P1, six tenths ahead of everyone, which is a huge difference when it comes to places for grid position. We hear more sound bites of Christian, Daniel, and the commentators saying how important the positions are for Monaco, especially pole. And we're treated to Daniel's onboard camera. He is just flying around the track. Seb grabbed pole at one point, but then it ends with Danny in P1. Woohoo! He tells us that he's thinking, quote, okay, 50% of this is done. Let's finish it tomorrow. Everyone is celebrating around him. Then he walks over to his mom and dad, who he gives big sweet hugs to. The emotional toll of the show is a lot. Everything changes so quick. Buxton interview cuts in, and he says at the moment, Daniel isn't putting a foot wrong, and the team would be putting a question mark on why they spent so much money on Max. He says, quote, he put it in the wall trying to prove to the world he was quicker than Daniel, and he sacrificed his entire weekend for what? For nothing. End quote. This is over a sad-looking Maxi, really not sure what he's staring at, but of course the kid looks really dejected. Chris Medlin then tells us that Daniel seems to be the more consistent driver now and repeats the sentiment of Red Bull questioning who they put their money behind if Max doesn't start to win. The next scene is a press conference with the four team bosses sitting from left to right. We have Zach Brown, Christian, Toto Wolf with Mercedes, and Frederick Vesseur with Sauber. As I've said many times, the media has no chill with their questions, and they straight up ask Horner to give a percentage of how confident they are of keeping Daniel. I just want to say that it's very telling. He's not like, oh, it's 100% or whatever, but maybe that's just because he's not sure what's going on in Danny's head if he wants to stay or not whatever instead he responds that it's difficult to put a number on it but they're very happy with Daniel and there's a desire to keep him for next year I also want to repeat for the people in the back that in these shows especially this one editing is key we have no idea when that conference happened and for these responses to come up we're led to believe it was directly after quali Jump to Sunday race day, we hear some cool bass guitar music that's meant to get you pumped up. Some scenes in Monaco, the drivers are getting ready, they're looking all cool, like Esteban Ocon and Kimi Raikkonen. We're treated to even more bougie scenes of champagne, rich-looking people, even a Bella Hadid cameo. As the commentator is narrating, we get slow-mos of the following drivers walking. Daniel's on pole, Sebastian's in second, Lewis is third, and Kimi is fourth. Unfortunately, Max is going to start at the back of the grid in 20th. One of the Sky Sports reporters smiling at Max at the pre-race interview asks a stupid question, how are you doing this morning? To which Maxie responds, not so good. Ugh, duh. But then the scene cuts off so we don't get to see if he turns it around with a positive attitude or something. Instead, we're taken to the Williams garage. Claire tells us that it would be a great achievement to get points on one car, but if it was both of those, of course, even better. Which really sheds light onto the low expectations of the team. As of now, Sergey is starting 13th and Lance in 17th. 
Claire jokes that it would be nice if there was a big pile up on the first lap and their cars got through. Back to the Red Bull garage, Danny's narrating that he just wants the race to start. It's his best chance to win here since 2016, where he says he was lost due to no fault of his own. Flashback to 2016, onboard camera, he's driving through the streets, first pole position of his career, and he's in a comfortable lead. He goes to pit, and there are no tires waiting for him. He's just a sitting duck. The pit stop was more than 10 seconds, and as he pulls out, Lewis Hamilton literally just passes him, and then from there he gets P2. Oh my fucking god, how shitty. He looked so mad on that podium, and he tells a reporter afterwards that he just doesn't want to hear anything from anyone, and he just wants to leave. Back to 2018, he's saying, it's my fucking time. Medlin tells us the tale of the two sides of the season. If Daniel wins this race and beats Max in the point, it just further proves to Red Bull that they should put their faith in him. But his priority might be trying to perform well so that he can go to a bigger team instead, like Mercedes or Ferrari. Back to present day, the race where everyone is getting ready on the grid. More commentators are talking about Daniel's good fortune, Max's bad start, and where Williams can end up. It's lights out and away we go. Into turn one, Vettel tries to get in on Danny, but it doesn't work. Daniel stays ahead and Seb is close behind. Insert random celebrity cameo of Hugh Grant watching the Grand Prix. At this time, he looks old, but he's still a silver fox. Good for him. Switch to Max's on board. We hear that he's past the Haases, who were 18th and 19th. And then he pulls a nice overtake to the tight corner on Lance to get up into 16th. He continues to fly down the straight and passes a Toro Rosso, which is probably Brandon Hartley since he started 15th. Now to Lance's on board, where he's battling Charles Leclerc in the Sauber. And wow, these streets are tiny. But oh, his front left just bumps up against Charles's back tire and there's a puncture, plus the front wing needs to be changed. Back to Daniel, who's leading Seb. They called Daniel to box and we're now we're reminded of the 2016 disaster. However, Red Bull performs a fast pit stop and now he continues to be in the lead. Max at this point has moved up all the way into ninth place. Wow, he's doing well. That's 11 places in a circuit that's known for the lack of overtaking. But there's trouble now for Danny. The car is slowing down, and he says he's losing power to the engineer. He's asking if there's any way this will get better, and the response is negative. At this point, I'm nervous. I'm sure the whole audience watching is nervous. Again, if he loses P1, it's not his fault. Christian says something called the MGUK failed, which is a 99% chance to have to retire the car. Daniel's just managing to keep Seb behind him with great defending, but we do not know at this point how much longer. Danny tells us at this point he was so frustrated and just wanted to throw the steering wheel out, wondering how could this happen. But it is such a fucking nail-biter, and this music is purposefully suspenseful, which is not helping anybody's nerves. Answered another random celebrity cameo, and it's Chris Kardashian-Jenner, the queen herself, looking all bronzed. Back to Lance, and this poor kid has been lapped twice. He's now complaining to the engineer about the brake pedal at this point, and he says, it's ridiculous. What's the point of even racing right now? Which I totally get. When the car is just not up to par, not even Lewis Hamilton can save you. Ten laps to go. Daniel still has Seb behind him somehow. Seb's engineer is telling him to keep the pressure on Daniel and just wait until he makes a mistake to get past. Danny's narration comes back, and he basically says he can't start playing the world's smallest violin because that won't help. 
and now we're down to three laps to go. Danny's attitude has changed, and he tells us that he's getting after it at that point. Remember that this is one of the shortest tracks, so three laps is less than five minutes. Oh, and then Seb has a massive lockup. We see smoke flying from the brake, and he manages to keep control into a turn, but he was slowed down massively. And then, somehow, the McLaren of Stoffel Van Dorn, not in contention for the lead, splits the drivers as he pulls out of the pit stop in front of Seb, and Danny finishes across that finish line. It is redemption day. Christian tells him he's their hero, unfucking believable, end quote, he says over the radio. The whole team is celebrating over great triumphant music. Danny jumps into the crowd of the mechanics and he's hugging Christian. The joy is just palpable through the screen. We then get a whiplash of emotion as we're switched to the depressing silence of the Williams paddock and a sad Claire and Stroll Sr. We see the race results on the TV next to them. Claire says it's hard to come to grips with losing and that it's been six years since they've won a race. Yeesh. Also in the scene, Stroll Sr. stands up and like adjusts his shirt into his pants. He clearly likes them to have high-waisted style and basically giving himself a camel tail. Ugh. Of course, Claire's questioning herself and her role as a leader and can, can she do this? Whiplash again, we hear the signature celebration podium music. Daniel's hoisting his trophy up with a huge smile and the boys are spraying each other with their champagne. It was Seb and Lewis that finished if that wasn't obvious. Now we're back at the Red Bull paddock away from the crowd where Gracie and Joe are waiting for Danny. Christian hugs them and says they are the proudest parents in town. Ginger Spice is there as well, congratulating them sweetly. Christian is even hugging Danny's business manager, who we met before. We see a clip of Danny walking up the stairs at the Red Bull pad, pumping up the crowd like, yeah, buddy, and telling them to make some noise with a little hand wave. But again, we see the contrasting side of this race. At the other side of the trailer, Max is sulking from finishing ninth. He's telling Christian that it's, quote, really painful with a little sad puppy face. And he responds, it'll come, which I'm assuming, like, your time will come to shine or win or whatever. And then basically says, shake it off and be happy for Danny. So back to the pool pad celebration, they're together talking and laughing. But Max is narrating how he basically saying he should have won, but he has to suck it up and pretend to be happy. He reveals that he was actually furious enough to break down the whole energy station himself. Yikes. More hugs and smiles for Danny with his parents, celebration pictures, and a team picture. And then we see the infamous pool celebration. Daniel throws his hat off, swings his arms back, and belly flops right into the pool. In the background, he's saying that he wants to be the best in the world, and he believes in his talent. And that's not to sound arrogant, but this will probably prompt some big offers. The rest of the Red Bull team push each other into the pool as well to celebrate as the episode ends. Dun, dun, dun. On this week's Coming Up Real, we hear Cyril basically saying Red Bull's comments about the Renault engine have gone over the line. Reminder to the crowd, Renault is the engine supplier for the Red Bull team right now, and they have been for a while. And Cyril is the team principal for Renault Racing, so he's taking this personally as well. Christian then comes in with a nice analogy. We've been paying to fly in first class, but we've ended up with an economy ticket. And basically, now they go back and forth with digs at each other and their teams. Cyril is saying Red Bull's wins are because of Renault, and Christian is saying that Cyril is emotionally unstable. 
Then the episode finally ends with Christian staring at the camera from far away saying, we need to make a decision. And scene. That's it, people. As always, thank you for joining in another exciting episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And please keep following along into episode four. Um, editor's note, I have to apologize for the wrong name of the amazing Ginger Spice. It's Jerry Hollowell, not Holloway, excuse me. I was rushing to record and I messed that up. I send my deepest regrets. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the real drivers of Formula One. DM me with your thoughts, comments, questions, whatever. I also have an email, therealdriversoff1 at gmail.com. And depending on where you are in the world, good morning. And in case I don't hear from you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, my new friends. <music>